Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Maggie Dupree, entrepreneur, community builder, activist, innovator, and mother. Maggie Dupree is the co-founder of the League of Entrepreneurs, the global learning community for social entrepreneurs people working for a better world from inside businesses and other organisations. She has spent over a decade harnessing the innovation potential of businesses to address issues ranging from climate change to healthcare. In this time, she has worked with companies such as GSK, BMW, Nike, to name but a few. She is the co-author, alongside John Elkington, of The Social Entrepreneur, a field guide for corporate changemakers. She says, I believe that we can unlock human agency, even amongst our most scaled and systematized organizations. Maggie, welcome. Oh, thanks, Katie. It's great to be here. Maggie, you really have been spearheading the entrepreneur movement. For those who are listening who may not know what this means, could you share a little bit more about it and and the evolution perhaps to date? Sure, Katie. I mean, simply put, you know, entrepreneurship is entrepreneurship on the inside. Right. So you look at somebody sitting inside a a typically larger organization where they're applying entrepreneurial skills to solve real problems. And I guess why we're seeing this kind of acceleration of the movement today is because so many people at work are looking for meaning, they're looking for purpose, and they're kind of looking out and seeing all these challenges that we're facing, whether that's local challenges, you know, driving. To work and seeing, you know, homeless camps on uh, the side of the road, or just driving to work and thinking about the emissions that they're emitting. You know, people's consciousness of these challenges is raised, and they're starting to think, you know, how can I make a difference through my day job and applying entrepreneurial skills to do that? So rather than, <laughs> you know, putting your head in your hands and you know having these existential crises, I think people are starting to see they have a sense of agency, a sense of power to be able to make a difference from within their day job. And I mean, could you give us some examples of what that entrepreneurship looks like in action? Sure. I mean, it really runs the gamut. You know, there's an entrepreneur working on probably every issue (laughs) under the sun. But, um, you know, I can think of a few uh, that stand out for me. One of the first entrepreneurs I met is a woman named Miriam Sidibe. And Miriam's really interesting. She has a PhD in public health with a focus on hand washing with soap. It's a very unique qualification and someone like Miriam would typically have gone to work for the WHO, you know, World Health Organization or a UN agency to work on a global public health campaign. But Miriam took a different route. She actually believes very strongly in the role of the private sector to address societal challenges like public health. So she went to work for Unilever and specifically for their Life Buoy brand Uh, which is a soap manufacturer, because she has done research looking at the health implications of hand-washing with soap, and soap saves lives, basically, is is the point. And so she felt going into the private sector, working with a soap manufacturer, she could reach more people with information about hand-washing with soap, as well as access to the product, 
to literally save lives. And, you know, fast forward 10 or more years since she's been doing this work and she is, you know, so they've run one of the largest health campaigns in the world from within Unilever and they're literally saving lives, but there's a business case, you know, they're building brand, they're building trust and they're selling more soap. So she's writing a book now on that, taking a sabbatical at Harvard to look at the role of brands in addressing public health outcomes. You know, another Miriam, actually, another example, a woman named Miriam Turner was sitting inside a global carpet manufacturer when somebody approached her about a a major global challenge, which is plastic pollution, you know, that I think people are becoming more aware of all the plastic that's getting left in our oceans. And this in particular was the plastic fishing nets that were left over by fishermen who were done fishing, leaving them in the seas. And what these nets do is they continue to catch fish and degrade marine ecosystems even though they're no longer in use. And it's about, I think, 10% of marine debris annually is made of what they call these ghost nets. So Miriam was working at this carpet company and somebody approached her having found out about this problem and asked, you know, is there something we might be able to do? And so for Miriam Turner, you know, a, a serial entrepreneur, I would call her, who does this kind of time and time again, you know, something clicked and she said, let me have a look and see, is there a way that we can address this plastic pollution challenge through our supply chain. And it turns out that the material in the fishing nets is actually an input into the carpet manufacturer. But she didn't just look at how can we recycle the waste product. She looked at how can we involve the coastal communities, particularly in Southeast Asia, low-income communities that rely on these marine ecosystems in the conservation and protection of these ecosystems and provide them with a financial benefit to doing so. So she created a program called Networks Uh, recycling these ghost fishing nets, turning them into new carpet and involving the local communities to their financial benefit and also to the health of their marine ecosystems. And that's a program that's now kind of scaling up around the world. A final example I would share is uh, Jake Hirsch Allen at LinkedIn. So Jake joined LinkedIn and really saw the potential for using data and technology to help people move into the workforce to, you know, increase economic development. So LinkedIn, you know, is not just a networking platform, but as you probably know, they provide one of the largest platforms for learning and education. But a lot of people who don't have access to that can't maybe pay for that content. So Jake established one of the first pioneering partnerships with governments around North America to provide access to that learning and development content to help people move into the workforce to develop skills to get jobs. So it's become a growing and important part of LinkedIn's business model. And again, it was just, you know, somebody who saw an opportunity and didn't take no for an answer. So, you know, those are a few examples. Those are all in the private sector. I would say we're also seeing increasingly entrepreneurs working in governments as well as nonprofits. So just, you know, super touching on a few of those, you know, there's a woman working on cocoa supply chain for a nonprofit called Bird Life. And, you know, the the idea there is that she saw if we're going to work on wildlife conservation, we have to work with the people in these communities and help them to see the value of protecting those ecosystems. So she was working with cocoa farmers, helping them create more value from their product and see the connections between you know, a healthy ecosystem and their, the health of their families. And then government, you know, we have a, a member of the league who's working for the city of San Francisco, and he's prototyping what's called a universal basic income. So really looking at these new and alternative models for workforce development, for income generation, for economic development, for, for citizens. So again, it's a, it's a cross-sectoral phenomenon, which is really exciting. 
Wow. I don't really know how else to respond, really, Maggie, but clearly surrounding, being surrounded by such amazing people doing incredible stuff. I mean, what's motivating your personal journey? Well, them, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, you just feel like a little bit of it rubs off on you when you hang out with these people that have so much courage. You know, it takes a lot of courage and conviction to, to stand up and, and voice these ideas in the first place. And to say, look, you know, we have a responsibility and a role to play. There's an opportunity here. And, you know, when so often the initial reaction is, you know, we're not in that business or that's not our job or, you know, that's been tried before and it doesn't work. So, you know, entrepreneurs, nobody ever says yes, kind of the first, the first time. And so, you know, the ability to keep going, the perseverance. Yeah. And I would just say that the sheer courage that they have to do this work, I'm, I'm in awe of and have a huge amount of respect for these folks. So you know, that motivates me. And then just knowing that there's so much more untapped potential in these organizations, right? So, you know, the folks that I've come across are just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, in terms of the latent potential of every employee to do something. And it doesn't have to be a global health campaign, right? You know, it can be something smaller. You know, I, I love the story of there's a retailer in the UK called Cook's, and they sell, you know, pre-prepared food. So, you know, for busy families, you can come and get your lasagna. And also they were seeing a lot of single serve meals being sold, particularly to elderly consumers. And they noticed that these people were kind of hanging out in the shops, you know, so they would not only come to get their one serve lasagna, but they would start talking to the folks behind the counter and just having conversation. But they realized a lot of these people were lonely, you know, so they were actually getting this social interaction by coming to the stores. So they set up this loneliness cafe, you know, I don't think they called it necessarily that, but, you know, a cafe to invite their uh, customers to come and have social interactions with other customers who are seeking connection. That's such a simple thing to do. It's so beautiful. And that's what I love about entrepreneurship is it's, uh, it can be as big and systemic as you want it, but it can also be these small things, but that have an impact on people's daily lives. So yeah, I guess that's, that's why I do this work. Enough to get you out of bed every morning. Um, <laughs> and, and strong coffee. Strong coffee always helps everybody. I think global productivity would be down if we didn't have strong coffee, I think. Talking of sort of globalization, Maggie, you set up the league when you were based in the UK, but you've recently moved back to the US. I'm always curious to see the differences or understand the differences between different markets. I mean, are you finding and experiencing big differences or lots of similarities between US, UK, and the other markets that you're working in? I would say the similarities are stronger than the differences. I think what is connecting this movement globally, and you know, the league is in 17 countries now, and while there are some distinctions that we observe, it's so much more similar than, than different. And these themes that connect this global movement, I think the, the first is that you know, we're not seeing in, in most countries leadership coming from the top down. You know, so it's opening up this vacuum in terms of leadership and inviting people to step in. And that for me is what entrepreneurs are doing is they're kind of seeing <laughs> this vacuum of leadership, you know, where traditionally we might have looked to a, a CEO or a president or, a, you know, some sort of traditional leader. People are like, oh, wait, <laughs> if something's going to change here, I actually have to be a part of that change. So that feels very kind of common across the regions. I think in the, the U.S., there's definitely a city focus. Which I'm not saying is unique to here, but that's something that's playing out is, you know, how do we work across sectors, across silos to address these kind of city level challenges? So you're seeing the progressive agenda uh, really happening at the city level. 
much less so at the, at the federal level in, in the U.S. I think the other thing I've observed in the U.S. that, that may be distinct, but certainly not unique, is just they're, the, we're over-programmed. <laughs> like, people are so busy and it's so interesting. I've been kind of doing this U.S. tour. I've been about six different cities meeting with all sorts of entrepreneurs and various companies. And they just don't have space and time to, you know, for reflection, for contemplation, and for creativity. So I do wonder that that just doesn't, you know, those are the key ingredients for innovation and entrepreneurship. So I wonder about some of these companies, you know, that started as very entrepreneurial and are very proud of that entrepreneurial heritage, I sense are losing that as they kind of, yeah, over schedule and kind of over program their employees and, and lose that space for entrepreneurship, creativity, and, and exploration. Oh, super interesting, Maggie. Thank you. And if you are an entrepreneur or potential entrepreneur listening to this podcast today, I mean, what would be your top trends that people should be aware of if you are trying to deliver social impact through your business? So I think the trends that I'm picking up on are related, but perhaps a little separate, but it's to do with this kind of decentralization of power you know, kind of more citizen consumer activism and yeah, people stepping up that don't normally work in this kind of change ecosystem. And so I guess, you know, I'm loving seeing the employee activism. So employees saying, hey, wait a minute, we're not just employees, we're actually citizens as well. And we we have a point of view about how our company operates. You know, so the example in May, you know, when the Amazon employees use their shares to table issues that they cared about, like climate change. You know, that, that's a really powerful force and a reminder that, you know, we're, we're now starting to show up, show up more as our whole selves at work, which can sometimes put into you know, stark relief, like <laughs> the values we hold and the ways that our company operates. But I think it's all a force for good, right? I think the more we start to question, you know, how aligned is this company with my values, we can either choose to work for companies that are, that are aligned and those are going to be the companies that went out on the talent war and or we can step up and change those organizations so it is more in line. They are more in line with our values. And I think we're seeing that with consumers as well, right? Consumers are uh, taking more of a stand on the brands and the products that they choose, uh, the things that they buy. And so, you know, seeing companies who for a long time, you know, been working behind the scenes on supply chain and almost hesitant, I would say, to speak about their work from a consumer and brand facing perspective are all of a sudden realizing they're going to lose out. You know, that there are all these startups and companies emerging that are happy to talk about their, their brand and the work they're doing on impact in a consumer facing way. And so I think we're seeing these more incumbent institutions playing a little bit of catch up and having to be a bit more bold to say, actually, we are, we are proud of what we stand for. We do have a brand, you know, that you should care about. Whereas before, you know, they might've kind of kept that more behind the scenes. And I think this idea too, you know, that I'm seeing a lot of entrepreneurs that are asking themselves, how can I share power? You know, so I'm sitting in a very privileged position within this organization. How can I share that power with people that don't traditionally have access to this? So, you know, I think about Ryan Shepard, one of our fellows who's sitting in CARE, which is a global nonprofit in Atlanta. And he set up this global innovation hub to really kind of flip the model of traditional charity, which, you know, historically has been, you know, we take money and we create solutions and offer them to communities is to actually invite communities in to say, okay, we've got these assets, we have this platform, how can we share that with you to co-create solutions that are relevant for you and, and the problems that you're facing in your community? So I love this idea of 
you know, sharing power and, and checking privilege. And again, I mean, for those of you who are potentially listening to this podcast and thinking I could be an entrepreneur, this sounds like it could be something that I would be interested in doing. What might your advice be to them? Well, join the League of Entrepreneurs. <laughs> no, I mean, in all seriousness, I think just start somewhere. You know, I, I find like with both the entrepreneur and entrepreneur stories, you know, we always hear the, the end point, you know, so somebody's had a success you know, usually by the time we hear about it, it's, it's quite successful. And it can be intimidating, I think, to think, oh, well, I can never do that. That feels so big. But they started small most of the time. You know, they had to take a first step. So I think just asking yourself, like, what, what's that first step I could take? You know, and often it's just a conversation, right? So who could I talk to about this idea to kind of test my thinking? Where could I learn more? And what small experiment could I run? You know, just talking to a consumer or a citizen that you're trying to reach, you know, just start getting out there, having conversations, learning and listening, but don't keep it in the, you know, the file cabinet for the next <laughs> 10 years, which is sometimes what we hear people having done. We need more of you. And um, what would be your call to action for anybody else listening to this podcast today? Well, a couple of thoughts on that, Katie. I think one thing we're realizing is what's so important for entrepreneurs is to have you know, the fairy godmother or the mentor, or that kind of senior leader who creates space for them. So I feel like entrepreneurs, you know, you're going to go out there and you're going to do it. (laughs) Regardless, you're going to be more effective if you have somebody championing you and clearing the way and helping you make the right connections and position your idea, you know, in a politically savvy manner based on what the company cares about. So my call to action would be like for entrepreneurs, find that person or those people. And for any kind of leaders, you know, managers, kind of senior level folks in the organization listening, it's just ask yourself, like, am I creating space for entrepreneurs? Or maybe what more could I do to create space for people to be proactive, to come up with new ideas and help us solve these big challenges that we're facing as an organization? Maggie Dupree, thank you very much for your time and your insight today. It's been fascinating to listen to, and I hope that it hopefully has inspired a few people listening to this podcast. Katie, thanks so much for having me today. It's been uh, wonderful exploring these questions for you. And like you said, I hope it's been useful for your listeners. Pleasure. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 